we're back Brigadoon Radio with our good friends, Gerald Ashley, where we talk about emerging issues, shaping commerce and culture. Gerald, how you been? I'm very well. Um, I've nothing much to report in my world. It's all in the outside world. So I think we've got, we've got quite a lot to talk about today. Um, and I don't know, we started this podcast, I think, in the perfect year, maybe not for the world, <laughs> but for us, because, you know, we, we don't lack stories. So, as ever, I'll let you serve the first ball and um, see where we go. Well, you are right. We've got on top, I think, three interesting issues. We'll see what our uh, viewers decide. But we're going to start down under where it's already Saturday morning. We just checked. It's already Saturday. In the future, Sydney. We're going to talk about the election that's coming up in Australia this weekend. The, uh, the Aussies vote on Saturday, which is fantastic. I think that's actually an interesting idea. You know, here in the States, we vote on Tuesday because of uh, – the rumor is because of farmers. The farmers could go to the market on Tuesday, and that's why we decided to vote on Tuesday. Anyways, our friends in Australia are voting. Um, we won't have the results, I don't think, by the time we finish this pod because they're just starting to vote. But what looking for in this election, I think it's, uh, you know, I always like paying attention to what's happening in elections around the world to kind of get a sense of what might happen here in the U.S. What are you looking for in the Australian yeah, election? I, a, a couple of themes. I mean, obviously, a lot of themes are local, but the big one, which seems to be very important in Australia these days, is climate. Um, and they, whoever's running Australia has got a really big problem with climate, not just so much the weather and the climate outside, but the economy is in all the wrong industries. I mean, essentially, I think, isn't it the biggest hole in the world is in Australia, the open class mining? Um, and, you know, they do do a lot of digging stuff up and selling it to everybody else. And there's no way of... Um, you know, putting a gloss on it, it's it's bad for the environment to do it, and it's often sending stuff that makes the environment worse again. That said, um, there is a political movement to do something about it in Australia, and um, here's a chance to invent a new colour in politics, teal, um, a sort of light green shade, um, and that seems to be a kind of, uh, I suppose, less radical green element. And they seem to be fairly independent of the two main parties. So this may seem a stretch, but I wonder, is Australia moving into the same sort of politics that we've seen in France for the last 10 years, where the major parties start floundering and splintering and changing? So I think the results this time around are going to be very interesting in Australia. Yeah, you've now the three things I'm super interested in. I, it does seem like climate is front and center in this election because of that teal breakaway group. But uh, yeah, Australia's a huge extraction economy. They've got a massive market all over Asia to sell all kinds of raw materials. And I don't see that going away. The two leaders of the both two major parties have said, you know, they want to make some kind of progress on climate, but they're still supporting the coal industry. This teal movement is, I think, very interesting. My understanding, you're right, it's not as progressive as like a radical green, you know, kind of political party we might see here in the States or even in Europe. But they yeah. tend to be uh, professionals, you know, they may have a, a degree or two. They kind of work in the leafy suburbs of the big cities in Australia. They want to see some kind of progress made in the environment. Uh, but they also have got, you know, kind of conservative tendencies. But this fracturing, this kind of new political movements, we're seeing it all over. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that now more than ever, anybody can see what's happening in other parts of the world. And they want to emulate what's happening in France, what's happening in the UK, what's happening in the US. And I think that's shaping elections all around the world. Yeah, no, I, I kind of agree with that. And um, I don't think we see a radical change 
um, overnight or currently as is today in Australia, but maybe there'll be a huge surprise. But um, to use the old phrase, the tectonic plates are shifting and uh, it does seem to favour well-organised sort of parties that almost operate as raiding groups uh, for their own special interests and then try and join in coalitions. Now, coalitions don't always work. I mean, uh, Germany has got probably the most bizarre uh, coalition at the moment with very radical Greens on one end and absolutely head-banging uh, free marketeers on the other end. And this is part of the reason I think Chancellor Schultz is finding life difficult. Um, whether Scott Morrison survives, even if his party wins, must be a moot point. Large part of the party thinks he's the problem. So maybe we get Labour, maybe we get Liberal, but do we get Liberal and Scott Morrison? I, I kind of doubt. Um, but we're, we're outsiders uh, in this vote, and so maybe we're not close enough to things. But as you say, I think the Teal group is, is you know, portents to the future. Yeah, one of these uh, headlines, dislike of Morrison remains the dominant factor in the campaign. Here's another headline, Australian election contest of character and competence. Once again, yeah, we have a leader of a major political party who apparently isn't well-liked, but he remains in the job. And even this week, uh, Morrison yeah, said, I do some comes, come across like a bulldozer sometime, like trying to uh, soften his image in the final days of the campaign. Very interesting. I think what's also interesting, we've got this quad meeting that's supposed to start on Monday yeah. in uh, Tokyo, and the election's on Saturday. They're hoping to have a winner announced by Sunday. Uh, Anthony Albanese, who's the leader of the Labor Party, has said, if I win, I'm going to be sworn in, <laughs> and I'm going to attend the quad. So we have a situation where the other three members of the quad don't really know who's going to show up from Australia, and maybe nobody shows up, which is another interesting point of the geopolitics yeah. of this election. These, these multilateral things are, are never that easy. One quick thing on policy, which uh, is in Australia, in uh, Scott Morrison's uh, uh, party and uh, his um, manifesto, which I think is particularly mad, I would go so far as to say brain dead, is in a, there's, a, there's a real problem with property prices in Australia. And people, common to many of the major economies, find, people find it incredibly difficult to get on the so-called property ladder. And uh, Morrison and co are suggesting or promulgating the idea that young people can raid their retirement funds right. to start up capital uh, to get a house. This is madness squared because you're not actually creating any <laughs> properties. You're just injecting more money into the property market. Now, you, you don't need to have a PhD to work out if you're chasing more money or forcing more money into a property market with no more property, guess where the prices go? Now, we've, we've had this sort of nonsense um, uh, in the UK in a slightly different form, and governments are forever trying to rescue property markets by injecting more money in. Um, yeah. small, small hint, why don't they try building a few more houses? You know, it's just mad. Yeah, I'm super. I've not uh, had the fortune to visit Australia yet, but I, I've always heard these stories about the just the crazy pricing, and uh, I speculate too that there could be outside buyers, maybe that are inflating the prices. Mm. Is it really a question of there's just not enough uh, inventory in Australia? Is that one of the main drivers of, it, of the it, real it estate problems? I mean, I, I I'm in the same uh, same boat as you. I've not been to Australia, but here's our uh, 
our open plea for an invitation to do a live show in Sydney. We are <laughs> Um But yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a long-term problem. This has been 10, 20, 30 years. But that's the similar sort of problem we've had in the States and the UK. Obviously, in the States, we've had a particularly interesting property crash in the middle of all of that, 08, 09, and 10. UK less so. But I, in, almost in my lifetime, I can't think of anybody saying, well, you know, there's too much property around and it's all it's so cheap, we don't know what to do with it. One exception was Ireland, where Ireland overdeveloped um, in the 2010s and they ended up knocking new housing down that was never used. But in general, um, there's a shortage of property and of course it wins votes. Yeah. Um, old guys like me who own property will vote for somebody that doesn't change, you know, um, depress the price. Uh, you know, we're all going to vote for keep the prices high. So, Correct, yeah. So I'm just reading here, the polls open at 8 a.m., which I, I'm guessing is eight hours from now, and they close at 6 p.m. sharp. So um, I don't even know what time that'll be in the U.S., but that's the, uh, that's the situation. Maybe I can do some quick math here because it's 14 hours ahead. Um, anyway, that's what we have. So the yeah, polls will open in eight hours' time in Australia. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like you're sometime Saturday morning you'd know the results. One last thing about Australian um, elections, of course, it's compulsory to vote. Right. So I don't think everybody does vote, and I don't know quite what happens if you don't and all the rest of it, whether people spoil their ballot paper and whether you get fined if you don't vote. But they've always made a big thing about it. It's supposed to be compulsory voting. My, yeah, and some other sides too. They Because of the COVID situation, you've got people that can vote by phone, which is interesting, uh, mm. which I have not heard before. And of course, vote by mail will still be in action. So um, yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens with Australia. I guess we'll know the winner by who shows up in Tokyo. That'll be the, maybe both Morrison and Albanese will be... <laughs> Booking flights to Japan, and yeah, we'll see who shows up. Yeah, hopefully, it's a clean handover, not one of these messy ones where they're fighting to get on a plane. Or ah, it makes them for that makes for some great television there. So, <laughs> okay. at baggage handling, exactly. That's my bag. All right, here we go. Let's talk to something really wild: the three Fs, the food, three Fs. fuel, and finance. What a week! All the numbers are just. Commodity prices off the charts, the finance market going the other direction, everything falling away. Um, Explain what is happening, Gerald. Well, I think we can sort of um, do a little bit of self-congratulation here. I think we're on this story, not at the very start, but certainly by February into March, um, when we mentioned it a few times, it was very clear that there was trouble ahead in the food or the, the grain market, really, to be precise. Um, and also in things like vegetable oils. And it all it all comes from the fact that uh, Ukraine has uh, got a war on its hand, hands, obviously, and there's, there's going to be a, a much lower agricultural yield this year. It won't be zero, but it will be a lot lower than before. And it's worth bearing in mind Russia that's not affected in quite the same way, though there may be sanctions. Russia and... Um, uh, Ukraine represent about 30% of the grains market. So this is kind of big. And it's probably not going to cause a lot of grief in, you know, upscale vegetarian shops in California, where, you know, does it really matter whether you can get that particular pulse or grain or whatever? Um, but 
for large swathes of the world that you know bread is life and that is still the case the middle east this is a serious political hot potato to the extent we've already seen uh egypt uh stopped any uh exporting of uh flour and, and bread and all the rest of it and india had a go at stopping it exports a couple of weeks ago but they seem to have backpedaled from that and you know the old phrase that problems don't come singly they come in battalions um down the other end of the middle east in uh, morocco they've just had the most terrible drought or in experiencing the most terrible drought for 30 years and plunging uh, amounts of grain and wheat are going to be produced in that part of the world so um, this normally means political trouble ahead, to be honest. Yeah, this idea of, uh, I mean, you just nailed it. I mean, even uh, Sri Lanka, what's happening there. Um, just this, there was a column that Mohammed El Renin wrote this week, and the title was Beware of Global Economy with Little Fires. You know, I mean, there's so much focus here, obviously, in D.C., what's happening in Ukraine. The president said today is in Seoul, you know, kind of big, big stuff. But you look around the world, there are little pockets of fire everywhere, and none of them are good. You know, instability, people going hungry, people in the streets. I think we're in for a very dicey year ahead of us, you know. Yeah, which, the, the we're not... this, yeah a lot of this stuff is interlinked. Yeah. And um, it also plays into the worst possible time with all the general supply chain chaos that we still have post the pandemic or what we hopefully think is post the pandemic so that you know there are enough dislocations in the world economy um, without all of this um, and some of the dislocations which i think we touched on before may seem slightly bizarre so ukraine is a very big producer of uh, neon gas right and neon gas you need to make microchips with in the manufacturing process um a friend of mine's ordered a rather nice, um, I say British car, it's these days it's made by the Germans, but it's the um, a Mini Cooper. He ordered it in March, and there's no way he's going to get that Mini Cooper before the end of September. Wow. I, I don't think he's holding his breath then. And it's the lack of microchips. So there's also, obviously we talk about food, um, but this, the whole supply chain thing is a, is a mess as well. So those two together are big trouble. Yeah, we have the COVID situation in Shanghai. Uh, I saw a stat last week that over half of Apple's suppliers in Shanghai proper are in some kind of COVID situation. So you've got to think that Johnny's not going to get his, uh, you know, iPhone for Christmas. Uh, this thing's going to go on for a while. And it, what's really startling to me, I mean, obviously I pay attention to this stuff, you pay attention to this stuff, but I mean, rattling it off, like literally going around the world and saying, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. Yeah. I've never experienced anything like this in my life. People are going back saying this is something like from the 70s. It even seems more dramatic to me than even the 70s. I feel like yes. we're really in unprecedented territory. I would say yes and no. I think the, the 70s at the time felt directly very bad in the way that currently where I, you and I are sitting, they don't feel quite so bad. We're not actually queuing at filling stations. You know, uh, the British government very nearly brought in rationing of um of petrol and diesel um but in in other ways it's more enhanced because you know it's self-evidently we're in a much more interconnected world and all those connections are uh, 
they're all kind of vital. You, I think we've always given this example before, but you sit at home, you get into Amazon, you hit the Amazon Prime button and you order some uh, something that arrives 24 hours later at your home. Now, there's a lot of supply chain that's got that to the Amazon warehouse. Amazon have got the capital to be able to sit on all that stuff. But I think we're going to have to get used to the idea that all this just-in-time, I want it now, uh, is, well, it's either going to get more expensive in time or in money, or both, I think. Well, I think that isn't, this idea of sacrifice or, uh, yeah, can't get stuff right away, we've got a baby formula situation here in the States, and Biden invoked the Defense Production Act, in fact, the U.S. government is flying in formula from Zurich, Switzerland, to Indiana for it to be distributed. And we have our friend Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England. Britain faces apocalyptic raise in food prices because of the war. Um, I see where you got bureaucrats and politicians trying to get ahead of this thing, you know, make, using uh, tools or kind of setting the groundwork. Do they see stuff that we don't know? Or are they just moving faster just to keep the political voters happy i don't i i would never credit these guys for being faster than events i think they're always somewhat behind events um easy to say after the fact and i didn't say it before but i think more attention should have been paid to the um restarting of the economy and i know some economists and a minority said that that would be an inflationary effect there's a sudden pent-up demand and there'll be a surge and all the rest of it. But as everybody keeps saying and everybody said, well, no, don't worry, it's not a problem. We've been printing money like nobody's business for a number of years. Um, and how to say, is inflation actually the delayed cost for the free money we've had for the last two or three years? So, you know, there is no free lunch and it's going to come out in inflation. And in some ways, I mean, governments... Government's got a bit of a tightrope here because a nice quick dose of inflation helps on the debt. You know, it kind of washes down the value of the debt. But if it becomes uh, embedded in the economy and people start demanding more and more pay rises, um, then you've got a problem. And I think that's the problem we're close to. Um, as to Mr. Bailey's uh, apoplexy over food prices, I mean, I don't know... You know, where, where, where is apoplectic on, on, on the price scale? But I mean, 10% a one-off is a bad enough hit. Um, if it's a one-off one hit, you know, the inflation data might actually fall quite a lot next year because of the base rate effect as it, as it drops out of the system. But um, a second year of 10%, and then we are in the 1970s. Well, I think, yeah, I haven't really noticed, uh, just in my own local shopping, I mean, I don't, I haven't really noticed that much of an uptick when I go to the market, frankly, to buy kind of staples. And I mean, maybe it's a few bucks, but it hasn't been not it hasn't been that noticeable to me. What I think is interesting is like, is this some of this inflation being driven by fear, and the fact that many small businesses don't have pricing power, right? That is, are they already inflating the price because they're afraid of what what is happening when we're getting these messages about? The Defense Production Act, you know, when a reputable organization like the Bank of England says we're in a crisis situation, that gets okay. so much attention. Does that, is, do we, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, is, is inflation sometimes caused because of fear? People are afraid of what's happening well, and they want to be ahead of it. I think one aspect to this is I think you're right about pricing power. 
you know, there, there are people who gain in inflationary times. If you want to be charging inflation rather than buying it, and the consumer is likely to be on the wrong end of that equation. But it's quite interesting that some of the big um, store chains in the States, their share price has been smacked. So right. Target took a hell of a hit right. um, a few days ago. And I think the market thought that the big boys could absorb all this price stuff and that they would have a pricing power to push it through. Um, maybe that's not the case. Um, I think also Walmart had a had a rough time in the market. So the markets, I think the financial markets are adjusting to the idea that this might be around for quite a long time, that it's not just a one-off, three, six-month hit. Um, I, I tr I'm hoping to be a bit more optimistic about that, but like a lot of our conversations, we always end up coming back to China because China China needs needs to get back in the game and not be locked down and all the rest of it. And that might free up a lot of these problems, but we'll see. Well, for some of these companies, uh, especially not uh, kind of retailers, but you know people that sell to retailers, like Nike of the world, like 20% of the revenue, Apple, 20% of the revenue is all from China. Having China depressed at all, I think creates other kind of anxieties in the marketplace. I realize the stock market isn't the economy, but oh my gosh, these numbers are just terrifying. Um, and just if you listen to these financial experts, the word recession is being thrown around like crazy. You're spot on. All the retailers took a major hit. Uh, technology. I mean, there, I, I saw a stat that Facebook is down 50% in one year. Like they've lost 50% of the market capitalization. I don't know where this money is going. You know, oh, I can tell you. I can even... tell you where that money is. It's in the, metav <laughs> it's in the metaverse, Mark. It's a, parallel, <laughs> it's a parallel world where it is. Now, of course, it's gone into thin air. Um, but you would you but, could say the valuations were well. That's what I'm not. Yeah, you're probably going where I'm going to say is. Are we just at the tail end of a 20 year kind of crazy bull market? And is it not like un, it's not unexpected that you know these companies got to come back to reality, lose 20, 30 percent? I mean, there's still it's hard to think Facebook's going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, it's time to invoke um, the great sort of market observer Peter Lynch. Uh, he wrote a book. I think it's called on how to get up get one up on Wall Street. He's a fund manager and he's, you, people can find loads of his talks um, on YouTube or wherever. He's been around forever. And um, he, on a number of occasions, has made the observation that um, stock prices often decline by up to 20%, uh, about every five or six years. Yeah. So the, market, the market memory is shorter than that. Uh, everybody looks at three-year horizons, and so we're all terrified when it drops. Now, the pr the problem is, um, if you're a long-term holder, you just kind of, you know, turn off Bloomberg or you turn off uh, all these wacko um, dealing or trading room shows, um, and you ignore it. The problem is for people who may be using our investments that they need to draw some of that down. And... Um, we live in a world now where maybe we are more aligned to the stock market than we were before because I guess what is it in the US it's IRA accounts and the, the Well the, the four Yeah, the four hundred one Ks. I mean this is compulsory the amount yeah. of money that just flowing in just because of financial schemes or payment schemes is and so the charts. You know, it was very much a sort of rich man's hobby, the stock market until the mid nineteen seventies or even mid nineteen eighties. We're all much more engaged in it now. Um, which may or may not be a good thing. You know, the old days of you just got your pension from the company pension fund 
when you retired. Now you may be asked to start playing the markets a bit. And um, of course, people are being encouraged to do that in a bull market, and they, they may find life a little bit harder going forward. So that's well, another cheerful thought. Well, speaking of harder, I saw uh, Elon Musk, um, you know, he made the, the bid for the Twitter, I think for yeah. 44 billion, and he's lost $48 billion in Tesla stock since this market correction. Um, I don't know, that seems like a big number. I'm not a huge, you is, know. It I'm, is a, it is a big number, right? Isn't it about time somebody lost a trillion? I mean, I can remember, I can remember when a million was a hell of a lot of money. And then we moved it. I don't know. When did we move into the billions? Sometime in the 1990s, I guess, when we started having all this dot-com craziness. Now, we, we've had a few market caps get over a trillion, well over a trillion. And you know the headlines always, billions wiped off the markets. Right. I think we should ask uh, our vast swathe of viewers, when will the first trillion wipe off day be? <laughs> Probably in the next five or ten years. You know, so there we are. That will be exciting. That actually will be good for CNBC. That'll be some good commentary. Speaking of big investments, I want to talk to you about electric vehicles and work from home. Right. I've been thinking about this. EVs, electric vehicles, are dependent on people needing cars to go somewhere, right? But yeah. if more and more of us are working from home, that is, and or maybe we only need to go to the city once or twice a week, does the EV investment race slow down because is the world changing where we just don't need cars as much is that possible well i think you published something the other day on your insights about there's this big move in big cities the kind of anti-car and yeah. you know a lot of talking of turning you know it's flash now you don't talk about a square you have to have a piazza so we're going to have piazzas everywhere because that kind of sounds more sexy um, and certainly the experience in London, it's becoming a total nightmare to try and drive around in London. Not that I've ever driven in London, really, but if you want to get a black... Well, you have, yeah, well, you have a driver, you know, how would you know what it's like to drive in London? Yeah, but I like to direct from the rear, obviously. Um, but there's, uh, there's no doubt that um, somewhere like London, and I just imagine Washington, I don't know so much about New York, but London and Washington are, are pretty anti-car. And but it's very easy to live in central London uh, without a car. You, you yeah. just need one. Now I'm I'm kind of more in the old-fashioned commuter belt here. So I'm I'm 45 minutes from the centre of London, and people still use a car a lot here. But if I'm honest, I can have everything delivered by the local grocery company or um, Amazon or whoever. A lot right. of people. Uh, something I've never really done, but a huge number of my friends do a huge amount of um, uh, meals via the internet. You know, whether it, whether it's just a, a snack what, to watch the television or it's some sort of grand family dinner. People are not cooking. So um, uh, you're right, the style of life is changing a great deal. But the thing about EVs, which I think is going to, well, will it restrict them or not? I mean, I, I st still think there's a big issue about range and there's a huge issue about cost. Yeah. I mean, you have to be a wealthy person to buy an electric, electric vehicle. Plus, they're subsidised. I don't know if they are in the States, but they're subsidised in the UK and Europe. 
I mean, you're getting something in dollar terms, probably five or six thousand dollars off the price. But they're yeah, not. Then yeah, not yeah. There's subsidized here. There's definitely encouragement. And uh, yeah, that factory you talked about, New York is proposing this New York 25 by 25. Basically, they want to convert 25 percent of all New York street space by 2025 to walkable pedestrian plazas, bike lanes, green space, etc. No car. And that you know, I mean, I don't know. 2025, I think it's like two, three years away, but yeah, no time. it seems a little aggressive, but there is a movement um, in the big cities. And, uh, you know, once again, we've got this bifurcation about urban cores, suburban, rural, certainly if, you know, you're a rural contractor, you're going to need some kind of truck. And there's a lot well, of... This is, this is political. If you're inside the Beltway, if you're, you know, in Westminster, in the whole of central London, you can't imagine why you'd ever need a car. Yeah. And, but... You know, London isn't London isn't Britain, and you know Washington, New York are not the United States. And I, I think it's got a big political element, which is in British politics. It goes back hundreds of years, which has always been um, rural versus cities. That's always been one of the main dynamics, and um, I just think that's heightened. And so I think if you were to do a poll of Londoners in London, they would want to scrap the car. Yeah. Um, you, you try and do that anywhere, even 30 miles out of London, they think you're mad. And so how this all pans out, I don't know. One element in this is going to be the price of the, the true price of electric cars if they, they kind of become commonplace. Because where the hell is the electricity coming from? Where's all the lithium coming from? And I know one of your notes, you, you hinted at somebody's dreamt up a battery that doesn't explode or something. Yeah, there's a great headline. Let's find a battery, a battery that charges faster but doesn't blow up. I mean, that is part of the problem, right? I mean, these things yeah. are combustible. The infrastructure spend, um, I don't know. It is exciting. Like, I could see if I was running Ford Motor Company or General Motors or VW, like the excitement of building a whole new industry, infrastructure. I mean, it's like big toys. You know, it's like it's exciting. But – um, I don't know. Is it needed? Will we I actually need wonder, it? And um, is there the energy there, no pun intended, to make it happen? Yeah, no. I think also, um, I wonder if it might just be a gigantic false move and that the re real move is going to be in fuel cells. Um, I, I think I may be rather ahead of current thinking on this, but I, I think hydrogen cars and particularly um, bigger vehicles have uh, got a lot, uh, a lot going for them. I mean, Elon Musk has got some battery-driven truck coming out or something. But how, how many batteries does that truck have so they can carry anything at all? I, I suspect the mathematics aren't in favour of that. But we've already got hydrogen buses in London. Um, I know that Germans are building some hydrogen trains. And it might work very well in the big sort of long distance trucking industry as well. So I wouldn't, I, I'm, I'm not certain that electric vehicles are the silver bullet that we're being sold. I'm quite, yeah, I'm with you. I'm quite bullish on uh, hydrogen. And um, it does seem, you know, there's multiple ways. We have multiple fuel now, right? To move different yeah. devices. We have jet fuel, we have diesel fuel, we have various petrol. Uh, etc. You got to think there's going to be multiple fuel sources out there, and to go all EV, I don't know. 
It just seems, well, it just, was, I don't know, it just seems super interesting and super wild, to be totally honest. Yeah, and I think it, maybe it is, you're right, it is an exciting time for business because there are going to be some big winners and big losers in all this. Um, it may well be that the oil companies do quite well out of all of this. Everybody's busy shutting down the oil companies. Well, hang on a moment. And then people are screaming, there's no natural gas, you know, and there may not be enough oil and all the rest of it. And oil's a long-term game. It's a, it's a 20, 30-year kind of investment horizon and delivery horizon. And so I, I, can see oil, I can see big oil being around for a very long time, even if you believe the idea it's a transition to this new cleaner world. Yeah. Um, you can't just shut it down in five years or something. It's a madness. Well, it wouldn't work. Well, it would be, the, well, it would be the Stone Age. It would be the Stone Age. Then there would, yeah, there's no cars and there's plenty of plazas. There's plenty of pedestrian walking in the Stone Age, as far yeah, as I know. So we, can, we can cook our food on the local piazza. It's just, just mad. Sounds delightful. As long as we can have a Negroni, that's, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> um, well, yeah, something to watch. I've been noodling on this idea of, like, you know, if you change the way people work and move, you know, yeah. you need cars and, like, um, Which something is your, to pay attention second, to. Yeah, your second part of the equation here, working from home. Um, we saw the big rush, you had to be at home. Then there's the sort of, maybe we're going back to a hybrid model. Um, I sense there's, I don't think we're going back to five days a week, but the hybrid model may be uh, more in the office than some people realize. I think it's at least a three day week. Or, well, we'll see, but I think as some big companies are really trying to push people back into the office. Um, we'll see. Yeah. So yeah, and there's all kinds of gimmicks. My wife was in her office this week, and there was a. This is an actual situation to encourage people to come into the office. They rented bikes from a local bike, you know, purveyor. They're electric bikes. They also had a blender. I kid you not, a blender attached to the bike, so you can make yourself a smoothie as you pedal. You pedal. I didn't know how to explain this. You pedal the blender, you make yourself a smoothie, you're conquering two things at once. You're being green, you're being echo, you're getting something healthy for you. But, you know. Yeah, this is. This I is can't imagine that's going to get you into the office because of some bicycle powered blender. This is at the uh, edge of you know, metropolitan madness. Isn't it? <laughs> the idea that you, it's the blender that swung me to the idea of going back to the office. But. Yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people are kind of feeling their way. The one thing I think you can't easily do working from home is marketing. So if I want to go and sell something to you, it's, it's more likely it's going to be successful if we meet in person, I think. And so there's lots of administrative donkey work where people may never, ever go into the an office again. Um, but there is a certain amount of business that needs humor interaction. And I, I wouldn't downplay that, actually. Um, one, one slightly, I wouldn't say comic, but one sideline to all of this is in the financial world. When are we going to start getting the huge insider dealing scandals? Because there was a lot of uh, dealing doing from home and wasn't being properly regulated in financial institutions. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting some of these, actually. Well, as we've seen the market... Uh lose a lot of cash i think we're going to see a lot of interesting stories uh in the coming weeks and uh you know 
That's Mr. Will... That's Mr. Buffett's phrase, isn't it? When the time yeah. goes out, we'll see who's wearing the shorts. Um, exactly. You know. It's always easy to uh, be wealthy when everything is going in the right direction. But All right, Metropolitan Madness. That sounds like either a great punk rock band, a great movie, or a West End play. So yeah. this is our favorite segment, what we're reading and watching. Indeed. Gerald, I will let you go first. Well, I went to one of those great British or English institutions last week, the local Garden Fate. This is basically um, uh, kids, dance troops, the Boy Scouts, little old ladies who are selling homemade jam, and of course, the inevitable secondhand bookstore. And I came across, I think, this book was written in 1950. And this is a paperback, I think, from 1956. So it's a touch older than me. Um, and it's called The Happy Odyssey. And we'll have a link in to uh, the show notes. Uh, this guy is the most unbelievable guy. In fact, you can't believe he is a, a real person. Um, <laughs> he is uh, Adrian Carton de Viat. Uh, Victoria Cross, Knight of the British Empire, Commander of the Bath, Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, and a Distinguished Service Order. Um, and he's more English than English, and I'm slightly reminded of David Buick a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure David won't, or will forgive me saying this, but like lots of people who seem very English, he wasn't English at all. He was born, he was born in Belgium. But this book, Every single event from about 1910 to 1950, First World War, Second World War, Treaty of Versailles, advice to Chiang Kai-shek in China, you, you name it, he's involved in it. And um, he also managed to lose an eye, um, lost some fingers off one of his hands. Uh, he had to bite one off because uh, he couldn't find somebody to cut one. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary. So somebody's got to make it into a film but it's 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 just a fascinating sort of front row seat to lots of world events so there we are the happy odyssey recommended it sounds like a very uh almost a forest gump of geopolitics yeah, it's, just, it's it's just extraordinary you wouldn't think oh no this can't be true but people can look up um uh, what's his proper name here again sir adrian carton de viat we'll have to put a link in for that um but he is a fascinating character. In terms of what we're watching, I was just channel hopping the other night and um, I ended up watching a, a film that I missed when it came out. I think it came out in 2016. Um, it's a sort of biopic of uh, Eddie Edwards, Eddie the Eagle. And I actually do remember uh, quite well him competing in the 1988 Calgary Winter Games. Yeah. And he was sneered at by a lot of people and then there was this period where he was thought to be a bit of a joke. Um, but actually, the film, which plays it straight down the middle, does show a remarkable mix of courage and sheer lunacy, basically. Um, it's no mean thing to try and jump off one of those things, I'm sure. I mean, so, you know, the, the, land, the landing thing is that angle. Well, the jumping is probably the easy part. It's the, yeah. uh, for me, it's probably the land. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So, um, Eddie the Eagle, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's it's kind of, um, it's not schmaltzy, but it is a sort of heartwarming film for all the right reasons and um, got some amusing moments as well. 
So yeah, I do you... remember. Um, yeah, I do remember the Calgary Olympics and uh, Eddie the Eagle. Fantastic. I mean, that's why the Olympics are so wonderful. Um, Judy, I would just briefly say, mind you, the establishment wanted to squeeze him out. They went. Oh sure. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah no, so would... it's perfect. Uh, the IOC, these various commissions running these various sports. I mean. Yeah, all these that's... guys. All these guys who are wearing blazers are never good news, right? <laughs> Exactly. Whenever you see a blazer at a sporting event, you know yeah. something's probably amiss. Um, yeah, I stumbled upon the show as well. It's from 2013, so it's about a decade old now, but it's called Italy Impact. It's a BBC, I think a BBC show. Uh, it's an art critic and a chef. They essentially drive the West Coast and East Coast of Italy. Nine episodes, absolutely fantastic. They stumble across all kinds of crazy art and architecture and you know they make these very kind of modest peasant dishes but uh it's a great little yeah you know, travel show and I, i've thoroughly enjoyed it that's andrew graham dixon is right that? and yeah he, was, he may still be the arts editor for the times um maybe the guardian he's he's kind of a big he's a big name in art and um senor uh or senor um locatelli Giorgio Lacatelli, correct. Quite a famous restaurateur here in London. Um, he's opened various places, some more successful than others, but he's a highly regarded chef in London. And uh, I have vague memories of watching this series, so I might try and dial it up again. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, being here in the States, I, uh, I still, I, I'll send you. I found it uh, all on YouTube, so I'll send yeah, you right. a link to that. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some copyright infringement policy there, but, you know, that's the power of the Internet, so... Enjoy it while we can. The other thing, uh, a book I read a few months ago, but I thought I would share with everybody. Uh, it's The Science of Storytelling. Uh, talks about the neuroscience, the myths, archetypes. Um, you know, just how to be a better writer. Fascinating book, really easy read, great examples. But um, a good reminder of uh, storytelling is at the core of humanity. And, you know, sometimes it's best not to overthink what we're writing and keep it simple, yeah. keep it no, human. Good book. Isn't that actually the art of writing is to keep it simple? The, yeah. the best writers are the people who can do that. And, and it, yeah, and it reminded me a lot of this TV show. I mean, you know, I mean, essentially, you got two obviously smart, interesting people. They're in a car. They're driving through Italy. Pretty simple. Great show. I mean, absolutely. Why overthink it? You know, I mean, fa fantastic. Well, it's also from your favorite part of the world. And now we come to the all-important uh, message for our potential sponsors, don't we? Maybe we need to uh, introduce some subliminal advertising. Like this should pop up every thirty seconds for three seconds. I wonder if we should start drinking Peroni beer or something like that. We need to step it up. Um, maybe we need to send this directly to the ambassador here in DC. Just say, well, hey. you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. <laughs> we got to, we got to get the, we got to get to Rome or Milan or somewhere somehow. So I'm yeah, gonna... what's the worst thing that can happen? We get sent to Bologna. <laughs> and don't mean uh, the key thing in Bologna don't mention the Bolognese sauce apparently they get very angry about that because it's not you know it's not yeah it's an Amer it's in a western and it's a yeah, it's, it's you guys again it's the Americans again yeah um, so uh, Bologna don't go for the sauce basically don't go for the sauce but go for the communism the red it's the red right yeah very much so this shows what local knowledge we have of Italy. It's amazing we're not already signed up. It's amazing, yeah. 
Uh, and I don't know. Maybe communism will come back. Maybe Bologna will lead the way. So we'll see. Well, that's a that's a cheerful note to end. <laughs> communism just hasn't been tried yet. It hasn't been tried properly. That's the that's the problem. Uh, yeah, that's the old joke, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right, Joe. This was a lot of fun. Um, we're gonna be back in June. We're gonna be. Uh, we get the U.S. Memorial Day coming here in the states. We got the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which is absolutely unbelievable. So uh, we're gonna get connected after that. Have a yep. chat about that. Um, I saw Prince Charles is in Canada this week, and uh, the Canadians are, you know, discussions about whether to keep the monarchy in Canada. So well, interesting stuff. I mean, we, we, we may not want to keep Canada. So yeah. <laughs> these things cut both ways. These things cut both ways. There's two sides to that loony. Okay. All right, Gerald. Thanks a lot. Good we'll stuff. see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.